Chapter 24 of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Bradfield. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter 24 Ashes of Tinder, a face at the window. That night, Hurstwood remained downtown entirely, going to the Palmer House for a bed after his work was through. He was in a fevered state of mind, owing to the blight his wife's action threatened to cast upon his entire future. While he was not sure how much significance might be attached to the threat she had made, he was sure that her attitude, if long continued, would cause him no end of trouble. She was determined, and had worsted him in a very important contest. How would it be from now on? He walked the floor of his little office, and later that of his room, putting one thing and another together to no avail. Mrs. Hurstwood, on the contrary, had decided not to lose her advantage by inaction. Now that she had practically cowed him, she would follow up her work with demands, the acknowledgment of which would make her word law in the future. He would have to pay her the money which she would now regularly demand, or there would be trouble. It did not matter what he did. She really did not care whether he came home any more or not. The household would move along much more pleasantly without him, and she could do as she wished without consulting anyone. Now she proposed to consult a lawyer and hire a detective. She would find out at once just what advantages she could gain. Hurstwood walked the floor, mentally arranging the chief points of his situation. She has that property in her name, he kept saying to himself. What a fool trick that was! Curse it! What a fool move that was! He also thought of his managerial position. If she raises a row now, I'll lose this thing. They won't have me around if my name gets in the papers. My friends, too! He grew more angry as he thought of the talk any action on her part would create. How would the papers talk about it? Every man he knew would be wondering. He would have to explain and deny and make a general mark of himself. Then Moy would come and confer with him, and there would be the devil to pay. Many little wrinkles gathered between his eyes as he contemplated this, and his brow moistened. He saw no solution of anything, not a loophole left. Through all of this, thoughts of Carrie flashed upon him, and the approaching affair of Saturday. Tangled as all his matters were, he did not worry over that. It was the one pleasing thing in this whole route of trouble. He could arrange that satisfactorily, for Carrie would be glad to wait, if necessary. He would see how things turned out tomorrow, and then he would talk to her. They were going to meet as usual. He saw only her pretty face and neat figure, and wondered why life was not arranged so that such joy as he found with her could be steadily maintained how much more pleasant it would be. Then he would take up his wife's threat again, and the wrinkles and moisture would return. In the morning he came over from the hotel and opened his mail, but there was nothing in it outside the ordinary run. For some reason he felt as if something might come that way, and was relieved when all the envelopes had been scanned and nothing suspicious noticed. He began to feel the appetite that had been wanting before he had reached the office, and decided, before going out to the park to meet Carrie, to drop in at the Grand Pacific and have a pot of coffee and some rolls. While the danger had not lessened, it had not as yet materialized, and with him no news was good news. If he could only get plenty of time to think, perhaps something would turn up. Surely, surely, this thing would not drift along to catastrophe and he not find a way out. His spirits fell, however, when, upon reaching the park, he waited and waited, and Carrie did not come. He held his favorite post for an hour or more, then arose and began to walk around restlessly. Could something have happened out there to keep her away? Could she have been reached by his wife? Surely not. 
So little did he consider Drua that it never once occurred to him to worry about his finding out. He grew restless as he ruminated, and then decided that perhaps it was nothing. She had not been able to get away this morning. That was why no letter notifying him had come. He would get one today. It would probably be on his desk when he got back. He would look for it at once. After a time, he gave up waiting and drearily headed for the Madison car. To add to his distress, the bright blue sky became overcast with little fleecy clouds which shut out the sun. The wind veered to the east, and by the time he reached his office, it was threatening to drizzle all afternoon. He went in and examined his letters, but there was nothing from Carrie. Fortunately, there was nothing from his wife, either. He thanked his stars that he did not have to confront that proposition just now when he needed to think so much. He walked the floor again, pretending to be in an ordinary mood, but secretly troubled beyond the expression of words. At one-thirty he went to Rector's for lunch, and when he returned a messenger was waiting for him. He looked at the little chap with a feeling of doubt. "'I'm to bring an answer,' said the boy. Hurstwood recognized his wife's writing. He tore it open and read without a show of feeling. It began in the most formal manner and was sharply and coldly worded throughout. "'I want you to send the money I asked for at once.' I need it to carry out my plans. You can stay away if you want to. It doesn't matter in the least. I must have some money, so don't delay, but send it by the boy. When he had finished it, he stood holding it in his hands. The audacity of the thing took his breath. It roused his ire also, the deepest element of revolt in him. His first impulse was to write but four words in reply. Go to the devil. But he compromised by telling the boy that there would be no reply. Then he sat down in his chair and gazed without seeing, contemplating the result of his work. What would she do about that, the confounded wretch? Was she going to try to bulldoze him into submission? He would go up there and have it out with her. That's what he would do. She was carrying things with too high a hand. These were his first thoughts. Later, however, his old discretion asserted itself. Something had to be done. A climax was near, and she would not sit idle. He knew her well enough to know that when she had decided upon a plan, she would follow it up. Possibly matters would go into a lawyer's hands at once. "'Damn her,' he said softly, with his teeth firmly set. "'I'll make it hot for her if she causes me trouble. I'll make her change her tone if I have to use force to do it.' He arose from his chair and went and looked out into the street. The long drizzle had begun. Pedestrians had turned up collars and trousers at the bottom. Hands were hidden in the pockets of the umbrellaless. Umbrellas were up. The street looked like a sea of round black cloth roofs, twisting, bobbing, moving. Trucks and vans were rattling in a noisy line, and everywhere men were shielding themselves as best they could. He scarcely noticed the picture. He was forever confronting his wife, demanding of her to change her attitude toward him before he worked her bodily harm. At four o'clock another note came, which simply said that if the money was not forthcoming that evening, the matter would be laid before Fitzgerald and Moy on the morrow, and other steps would be taken to get it. Hurstwood almost exclaimed out loud at the insistency of this thing. Yes, he would send her the money. He'd take it to her. He would go up there and have a talk with her, and that at once. He put on his hat and looked around for his umbrella. He would have some arrangement of this thing. He called the cab and was driven through the dreary rain to the north side. On the way, his temper cooled as he thought of the details of the case. What did she know? What had she done? Maybe she'd got hold of Carrie. Who knows? Or drew it. Perhaps she really had evidence and was prepared to fell him as a man does another from secret ambush. She was shrewd. Why should she taunt him this way unless she had good grounds? He began to wish that he had compromised in some way or other, that he had sent the money. Perhaps he could do it up here. 
He would go in and see, anyhow. He would have no row. By the time he reached his own street, he was keenly alive to the difficulties of his situation, and wished over and over that some solution would offer itself, that he could see his way out. He alighted and went up the steps to the front door, but it was with a nervous palpitation of the heart. He pulled out his key and tried to insert it, but another key was on the inside. He shook at the knob, but the door was locked. Then he rang the bell. No answer. He rang again, this time harder. Still no answer. He jangled it fiercely several times in succession, but without avail. Then he went below. There was a door which opened under the steps into the kitchen, protected by an iron grating intended as a safeguard against burglars. When he reached this, he noticed that it was also bolted, and that the kitchen windows were down. What could it mean? He rang the bell and then waited. Finally, seeing that no one was coming, he turned and went back to his cab. "'I guess they've gone out,' he said apologetically to the individual who was hiding his red face and a loose tarpaulin raincoat. "'I saw a young girl up in that window,' returned the cabbie. Hurstwood looked, but there was no face there now. He climbed moodily into the cab, relieved and distressed. "'So this was the game, was it? Shut him out and make him pay?' Well, by the Lord, that did beat all. End of chapter 24. Recording by Carrie Bradfield, St. Louis, Missouri.